All righty, we're in the book of First Thessalonians. If you were with us last week, you noted that we are going to talk today about what it looks like to walk worthy, and we gave a background to the book. This morning, I want to start with a brief map just to kind of bring you up to speed, and we'll talk about walking worthy while waiting. But <clears throat> we learned from the book of Acts that Paul was here in Troas, and one night he had a vision from God in which he saw a man who was from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. The Spirit of the Lord through this vision was showing Paul that God wanted to bring the gospel into this region. So if you're reading the book of Acts, you remember that he crossed over and he started, oh, that's not what I, wrong button, sorry about that. He started in Philippi and he planted a church there, but it was in the midst of extreme persecution. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was publicly humiliated, and he was thrown out of the city. The Bible that says in the book of Acts that he traveled through Apollonia and Amphilia and he came to Thessalonica. Now this was part of what was called the, the, the Ignatius Way. It was the key road that led towards Rome. And so he wanted to come to Thessalonica because it was such a strategic city. There was probably about 200,000 people in there. The Ignatian Way literally went right through the walls of the city. And so he knew there was a big synagogue there. And we saw last week that he came there and he went into the synagogue, and he wasn't there for a real long time, but he experienced both great fruit, but also great suffering. And as a result of that, he got, oh, I need to learn how to work this thing. He got kicked out of there. He had to leave, so he went to Berea. He then went down to Athens. And from Athens, he wanted so badly to go back and find out how they were doing. He was so concerned that hey, what, what, if, what if in the midst of their persecution, the people there, I had this little group of believers, what if they bailed? What if they gave up? But he wasn't able to go, so he sent Timothy. And Timothy went to Thessalonica. He found that the people there, even though they were being persecuted severely, were on fire for the Lord. They were eager to see Paul, and they were standing in their faith. And so Timothy comes back and he meets up with Paul and he tells Paul what a wonderful time he had there. And that's what Paul was inspired by to, to write this letter. So one of the things that's helpful, and I know for some of you, I don't want this to feel like a classroom because what we're trying to do is learn to read the Bible. Now, for some of you, you're like, I like a classroom, but it's not a classroom, but we want you to learn how to read the Bible. And I hope that some of you have already started reading the book of Thessalonians. It's helpful, and somebody came up to me after, I've mentioned having a study Bible, and I want to try to convince you why. You don't want to become totally dependent on what somebody else tells you, but sometimes it's kind of like having a, a guide to a play, act one, scene one. And so I want to put up here just a brief outline to sort of give you a, a sense of how to think through books of the Bible. So when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, his, these first three chapters, and, and I hope, I want to encourage you to read this book over and over again. You're allowed to read it more than once. There's a famous preacher can't remember, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd who used to say, I don't preach on a book of the Bible till I've read it 50 times. And so, and what you'll find is it's like watching a movie that you like over again. Some of you go, why would I read it again? Well, think about it. If you like it, you'll read it again, right? That's a dumb statement. That's like saying, why would I play a song that I like on the radio? 
That's my favorite song. Why would I listen to it again? So, so I want to encourage you to pray that God will give you a desire to read and dig in. So in the first three chapters, Paul writes to these Thessalonians, and I'm going to talk about four reasons why he wrote, and then we're going to read chapters, chapter one. But he wanted to, to, to thank God for their conversion, and then he wanted to talk about his own conduct, because after he left, he was accused of being a, a phony. So after he left, the Jews came to the converts, and they said, he's a phony. He was just trying to get your money. He was trying to get your attention. Your conversion wasn't real. Now come back to the synagogue. So he wanted to say, listen, you remember when I was with you. And he rehearses with them. He'll keep saying, you remember, you remember. So as you're reading through, he says at the end of this letter, I charge you to read this letter to all of the churches in Macedonia or all of the churches in Thessalonica. Everybody was to read this. So imagine you and I are the Thessalonian church. We're gathered together. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. And then he, then he shares his intense pastoral concern. He says, I want to come see you. I'm praying for you. I'm so thankful that you're doing okay. And I'm praying that God will bring us to, to complete the work that God began in you. The second half of the book has his apostolic instructions where he says, now, I want to remind you there's some things we need to talk about. Sexual purity. And there were a lot of questions that they had about prophecy. When's the Lord coming back? What about people that died? Are we in the tribulation? And so he gives a lot of practical teaching on prophecy about the rapture and about the day of the Lord. And then the end of the book has some practical instructions. Some of you have quoted some of these verses like rejoice in always and everything give thanks. Pray without ceasing. Don't quench the spirit. May God sanctify you entirely. So today we're going to just look at chapter one. And I want you to note that in chapter one, what he's really doing is he's, he's actually writing to them and just thanking God for their conversion. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles there, we're going to look at their conversion. I want you to think about this. One time I was talking to somebody about the Lord. They said, hey man, I feel like you're trying to convert me. Now on the one hand, that's sort of true. But at the end of the day, I can't convert anyone. But God can. So what I said to him is, I said, well, actually, I'm not really trying to convert you, but I want you to become converted because Jesus said, Unless you're converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? So what is conversion? What is a convert? That, that's a term that's used for someone who becomes a Christian, someone who becomes a believer. There's different ways to look at it. But this is kind of like an anatomy of conversion. In chapter 1, as we read it, we're going to look and say, okay, this is what conversion looks like. Now, here's why it's helpful for all of us. For each one of us, we have to think about, okay, how does my conversion compare to that conversion? Because everyone's conversion is different. Some of you were saved as an adult. Some of you were saved when you were four years old. You, you, we have some bright people here. You were reading Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason, and the, at four years old, the plausible arguments for the resurrection completely changed the way you live. But each one of us, and this is important because some of you aren't even sure you're a Christian. You don't have assurance. Some of your parents, you know, this is important because just because little Billy says, I asked Jesus in my heart, it doesn't necessarily mean that your child has yet been converted. So as we look through this, I hope that the Holy Spirit will help us all to, to grow. And so what I want us to do this morning, as, after I read this, is we're going to just look at three things. Number one, we're going to learn that when it comes to conversion, God causes it. Change follows it, and praise results from it. 
So let's pray and then we'll read. Father, thank you for your word and I pray that the Spirit will speak to us as we think about how you cause conversion, change results from it, and the, the praise and glory that you get results from it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Follow along and picture this church. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. And remember, these people were, many of them were godless pagans who were a couple months earlier worshiping statues, and they're radically saved, and now they won't go to the temple and, and sacrifice to these gods, and their friends are beating them up, their families rejecting them. And so they get this letter. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind. In other words, we think about you all the time. We think about your work of faith. We, we constantly remember your labor of love, we, 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 we frequently talk about your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And then Paul says this, in fact, as I think about how radically you were changed, I know this, my brothers who are dearly loved by God, his choice of you. I want you to think about that. As I look at what happened to you, I know that you are chosen, you're elect of God. Why does he say that? He says, here's how I know you're elect of God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, when I was with you and I shared this news, it didn't just fall off the edge of the, the plate. He goes, but instead, our gospel came to you in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. And it came with full conviction or full assurance like, like one of the things that struck him is how these people just dumbfoundedly were like, this is the truth and we're following it. He says, just as you know, and then he turns to say, not just the effect that it had on you, but, but, but think about the way we lived among you. So he's going to drop a hint. I know people say we're phonies, but he goes, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? He's going to keep saying that over and over again, chapter 2. You know, you remember. Now, it wasn't long before they were watching him, and they said, we want to be like Paul. We're going to tell others about Jesus. He says, you also became imitators of us. And he says, and actually, you're really, when you imitate us, you're actually imitators of the Lord. Well, how? Because you receive the word in much tribulation. But you weren't whining about it. You, you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Even though it was tough, people were hard on you, you were full of joy. In fact, Paul says, after imitating us for a while, you not only were imitators, now you were examples. He says, you actually became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now look at this. Look back up at this map. He says, it wasn't long before you started copying us. Then you became an example to all of the believers, all the way down in Corinth and Achaia. This is a powerful conversion story. He says, in fact, verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. 
They weren't just like, hey, you should come here. My friend Paul talk about Jesus. No, they were out there talking about Jesus. And he says, the word of the Lord sounded out not only in Macedonia and Achaia, like you talk about being an a, 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 a influential church. People were talking about him. He says, not just in this area, but everywhere, over in Rome, over in Asia, everywhere people heard about these people who were radically converted in Thessalonica. He says, so really, I, I, didn't, I didn't need to tell anybody what happened to you. They already did. I don't need to say anything. Well, what were they saying? What were, what were people saying about the Christians? What were people talking about their conversion? He says, well, you know what they're talking about. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. How you turned to God from idols. Like, that's crazy. And I mean, think about it right now. Imagine going into a polytheistic culture where, where they have... St- I've been in homes where they have st- things that they're praying to. Imagine having statues and, and votive things and you're praying to all these things. And you just come home one day and you go, all in the trash. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm worshiping Jesus. You turn to God from idols. And now you're serving a living and true God. And he says, and you're waiting for his son from heaven. Like these people had their head up, waiting for his son. This is why I've called this walking worthy while waiting, because every single chapter of this book, he talks about the return of Christ. So on the one hand, these people are running from sin. They're running to work for Christ, but they always got their eye on the future. You're waiting for his son to do what? Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wait, what? I could assure you if you went to the marketplace down in Philadelphia and you stood up with a sign that said, flee from the wrath to come, flee from the wrath to come, flee from the wrath to come. Most people will walk by and laugh, oh, look at that nut. What is wrong with that moron? Crazy religious nut. He needs to be put in an asylum. But the fact is, that's true. Jesus said that. Jesus said, flee from the wrath to come. And part of the gospel is is pointing out to people, if you don't turn to Jesus, God's going to open up a can of wrath on you and you're going to end up in hell. Well, we we don't like to talk about that. Can't we just emphasize the positive and, you know, how God wants us to be happy and he loves us? Well, there's a balance. So, as we read this passage, let's now go back and talk about conversion like this was radical and sometimes people feel bad I remember once I was sharing my faith with someone else and they said Pastor Tom you know you got radically saved when you were a teenager and you know one day you're doing drugs the next day you're telling people about Jesus I don't have a testimony I don't have a conversion story I was just like a little kid and you know I I didn't really I I came to Jesus when I was little I don't have anything to say I said you got a lot to say If you're a Christian, everybody has a lot to say. There's three parts to your testimony. What was your life like before you were a Christian? How did you become a Christian? And what difference has it made? 
Now, depending on when you were converted, if you were converted as a child, what was your life like before that? What are you going to say? Ah, oh, I was burying my kids and my friends in a sandbox. You don't have a whole lot to say about your past, right? You were a little kid, right? But you could still talk about how God opened your eyes and you understood that Jesus died to save you from the wrath to come. But then, hopefully, you've got something since then. What difference? If you say when you were four years old, I, I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, what difference has it made? Because it might not be that you did this, this, and this, and this, and this, and, and suddenly the Lord saved you. All of those things that you didn't do, the Lord saved you from them. And don't ever be embarrassed to say, oh, I don't have much of a past. Trust me, anybody who does will say, while I'm forgiven, it's baggage. I always have to claim my baggage. And I can't wait till I'm fully freed from that. So, let's say a few things about conversion. What do I mean by God causes it? Well, first of all, in verse 4, he says, Brothers, you are dearly loved by God, and he has chosen you. The Bible links these things together. Now, this is hard for us to understand, but as God looks down on his creation, there's about 7 billion people down here. God loves everybody. God is not willing for any to perish. God sent his son into the world to save the world. But there's a mystery in Scripture that says this. People go to hell, and it's their fault, right? No one goes to hell and, and, and says, oh, it's not my fault. I, you, no one told me or something like that. Everyone who ends up in hell, it's their fault. But there's this teaching in the Bible that if you become a Christian, it's God's fault, meaning this. It wasn't just that you figured it out. It's because God dearly loved you in a special way, not because you were special, but just out of his overflowing love, he chose you, right? And don't try to figure it out, why me, right? And don't get mad at him and say, it's not fair, why not them? But rather reflect on this. If you're a Christian, God emphasizes in the Bible, you're a Christian because you're chosen by God. He didn't, he didn't Look, some people go, he just knew what you were going to do. And he goes, you're going to pick me? Ooh, okay, I pick you. No, it's totally opposite. It's by his doing that you're a Christian. Now, there's a mystery to that. But celebrate that. If you're a Christian, God caused your salvation. And you know why? Because he dearly loves you. And because he dearly loves you, he brought you to himself. And everybody has a different story. And some of you are still trying to figure that out. Oh, was it here? Was, it when I, was I five? Was I 12? If you're a Christian, this is meant to comfort you. Not to confuse you. So rest in the fact, wow, God, nothing but your grace. When I was dead in my sin, deserving of your wrath, you made me alive. God dearly loves you and he chose you. Now that doesn't mean you should go, oh, how do I know my cousin? You, we don't know who's not chosen. And don't worry about who's not chosen. Plead and pray and beg and weep for souls. And if they don't receive Christ, don't say, ah, oh, it's because you're not chosen. It's their fault. But when you come to Christ, God goes, mark this down. It's because I chose you. So God causes it because of his loving election. And then the means by which he causes it is he uses several things. Number one, he uses the word of God. No one can become a Christian without the word of God. The Bible says we are born again by the living word. And so notice when Paul says... Our gospel did not come to you in word only. 
but it did come in word, right? And so every time someone reads this book, they have a choice to make. Is this the truth? Or is this just another idea? Somebody else throwing out some religious nonsense. And even that, God works in our hearts. In chapter 2, Paul says this, I thank God when you heard my message, the word of God, you received it, not as the word of man, but as it truly is, the word of God. Right? And that's what we need to pray for because we tell our children, hey, this is the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. But only God can open their eyes and convince them that this is truly the word of God. So by all means, if you're a parent, get the word of God into the hearts of your children. Some people say, that just feels like I'm brainwashing them. Well, trust me, the devil's already doing that. So give them the word of God and then spend time not just talking to them about God, but talking to God about them. Lord, open their eyes. Use your word. But even the word, the word itself is not enough because the Bible teaches that it's the spirit. Paul says our gospel came not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. We talked about this as one of our core values, whether it's the nursery or the seniors, whatever we do, we need to constantly praying that God's Holy Spirit will powerfully work, okay? And, and, and to me, the most powerful displays of the Spirit are not, oh, come up here and I'll heal your, your sore knee, but when someone's life is completely transformed, when an addict is set free, when a broken marriage is brought back together, when a parent and child are restored, when a hopeless, hurting person is transformed and receives a new heart. God's work is always done God's way through the Spirit. He said in the book of Zechariah, my work is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. Keep praying for that. Praying, dear God, let the Spirit change us, change others. And so God causes salvation. It's caused by his loving election. The instrument he uses is the word and the spirit and people. Paul says, you know what kind of people we were among you? He wants to use you. You don't need to be a preacher. In your sphere of influence, 80% of people who become a Christian, it's not through a preacher. It's not through a stranger on the street corner. It's through a friend or family member. Ask God to fill you with power and love and patience. And just keep sowing those seeds with kids and friends and neighbors. Hey, could I share something? Ever want to talk? You want to come to a Bible study? Just praying that God will work. So God causes it. But the second thing I want to talk about is change follows it. I think we've really gotten mixed up in American culture about what to celebrate when we think of conversion. We say, how many kids got uh, saved at uh, vacation Bible school? 320, right? I'm like, wait a minute. We don't do this here, but you'll see this all the time. And you go, well, let, let's tell what happened. Well, at the end, the speaker said, how many of you kids want to go to hell? <laughs> How many of you want to go to be with Jesus? <laughs> Say this prayer. Dear Jesus, come in my heart. Dear Jesus, come in my heart. How many of you said that? 60 kids were converted. No, stop that. Okay? Give them the gospel. Teach them what it means to respond. And then when people make a profession of faith, watch. Watch for change to follow. And if no change follows, keep a question mark over their head. Don't say, oh, they're definitely not saved. But don't give them assurance that they're a Christian if there's no change. 
So let's look at the change that took place in the Thessalonians. He said, first of all, in verse 3, he saw character change. He saw three fruitful pieces of character in their life. He said, I saw faith. Well, you can't see faith. Yeah, you can. You can see the results of it. He said, I remember your work of faith. Anybody who says, oh, I, I have faith in Jesus and you do nothing for Jesus. James already talked about that. He said, that's dead faith. What kind of faith is that? If you say, oh, I have, act, I believe in the Lord. You know, sometimes I like to give an illustration. I don't need to have you tell me what you believe. I could tell what you believe by what you do, right? So if I said, and make sure if this is being taped, this is not true. This is only a test. If I said, this building's going to blow up in 30 seconds, I don't need to go, how many of you believe me? I'll just watch. I don't care if you raise your hand, unless you have a death wish. If you don't run out of here, I go, you don't believe me, right? So one of the changes is you'll see a faith that begins to work, not working to get to heaven, but working because you're going to heaven. Secondly, he says, I saw love. I remember the labor that came out of your love. We get too excited. We say, Joe's really growing as a Christian. What do you mean? He reads the Bible two hours a day. I'm like, yeah, but Joe's nasty. <laughs> Nancy's crabby. And I'm just making these names up, Nancy and Joe. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> God's not, God doesn't care how many times you read the Bible. What difference does that make? If you're not becoming a more loving Christian. Love is patient. Love is kind. Years ago, I had a couple come to me that the guy got saved, or the wife got saved, the husband hadn't. We, I sat in the office, I said, to his wife, right in front of him, she said, or he said, who's, she's saved, he's not. He says, she's nasty. And I said, let me ask you a question. Since you've become a Christian, have you been a better wife or a worse wife? She said, oh, worse. And he said, that's the truth. And I said, no, right in front of him, I said, so... You want him to embrace your Jesus, but you're less loving now than before you were Christian. So one of the things we look for, and this is we're teaching and we're growing, we're learning how to love people. And if you love people, you're going to work and labor and sacrifice. You're going to say, I'm not setting up these chairs. These stupid people can do it. I'm not. When love flows out of us, we, we, we serve. And then lastly, he saw hope. Hope in the Bible is this confident expectation in the return of Christ. And, and, it, and it enables you to persevere. You're not quitting. He said, I saw your patience produced by hope. So, so conversion is followed by change. And the first change is in your character. But that's not the only place we see change. We also see change in people turning from sin. Look at verse 9. You turn to God from idols. You can't turn to God without turning from something. It just can't happen. So when a person says, I turn to God, the implication is you turn from something. Okay? Now, what might that be? Whatever it was that was taking the place of God in your life. Now, for some people, we go, yeah, he turned from smoking crack and stealing and murdering. But for others, it can be far more subtle. Some of you just need to turn from your self-righteous religiosity that makes you think you're going to heaven, right, because you're a good person. Conversion is turning from trusting in myself, turning from sin. 
There's no such thing as a person becoming a Christian and not being willing to turn from their sins. That's why most people don't become Christians. It's not because they don't have John 3.16, they haven't seen Tim Tebow, right? The Bible says men love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil. They don't want to come to the light. So one of the things you want to look for is as your child says, oh, yeah, I'm saved. Do they still lie like it's their job? Are they still mean as ever? Or are you starting to see a sensitivity to sin? And so I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, the Bible says, no one who has been born from God will continually and habitually practice sin. He can't because God's seed abides in him. So pray that our conversion will, will evidence itself through growing character, through turning from sin. And then the third change that I see is that people begin to share the gospel, right? He says, as you turn to Christ, from you the word of the Lord sounded forth. Verse 8, underline that word, sounded forth. It's, it's the Greek word for a trumpet. Do, 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 do. Actually, is that a trumpet or a... What's that big, long one? That's not, is that a trumpet? Call it a trumpet, right? The word, yeah, trombone, thank you. The word of God trumpeted forth from you, right? You, want, you know what I do when I want to analyze a conversion? Somebody says, oh, yeah, Pastor, I got saved. I go, have you told your family? It's been two years now. Have you told your family? Oh, no. No, oh, why not? Oh, do you know what would happen if I told them? I go, do you know what will happen if you don't? Like, think about this. If someone says, I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and without Christ, people are going to end up in hell, as one man said, how much do you have to hate someone to not at least try to tell them? So how exciting to think about this. The word of God. Imagine from Riverstone Church, the word of the Lord trumpeted all through Bucks County. Now, I'm not suggesting we all get tracks and go scream on the street corner. Just loving our friends, neighbors, having them over for dinner, building relationships, talking to the people at work, asking God, Lord, let us extend the gospel. And then one last thing in their change, and we're winding it down, is that discipleship results that's part of the change, right? We, we say here that we're making disciples who make, make disciples, right? So if a person becomes converted, Paul says the first part of discipleship is you became imitators of us, right? That's kind of scary to tell people, follow me as I follow Christ. But they became disciples. They, they looked at others who were like Jesus and they started to try to become like them. But interestingly, over time, if you are a disciple and you're becoming like Christ, you will be making disciples. Notice the transition. He goes, you started by imitating us, but it wasn't long till you became examples. So I got a great place for you to start making disciples. Parents, in your home, do you want your kids to pray like you do? Do you want them to have the same values you do? Do you want them to love the Word of God like you do? Right? So Christianity is, is taught, but it's also caught. Pray that God will help us. I can't go back and undo my past, but in the future as I move forward, Lord, help me to imitate those who follow Christ. Help me to be an example. Help me to make disciples. So change, character, turning from sin, sharing the gospel, discipleship. So God causes it. Change follows it. Last thing, 
praise results from it. You see, the big point is it's about God. Paul goes, we constantly thank God. We're in this play because it's about God. He is getting glory. Every time someone comes to Christ, he's getting more glory. I like to think of it as a, as a choir. Uh, we're, we're recruiting people for a heavenly choir. Join the song. Join the song. As we close this morning, one of my favorite verses that I pray is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, I pray that God's grace will spread to more and more people. I don't know if you remember the old MAB paint commercial. I had a picture of the earth and it has a can of paint above it. And it, just, and it would just have the paint running down and, and spreading through the earth. That's what the gospel is doing. But it's always doing it intentionally for God's glory. So, so this is what Paul prayed. I pray that God's grace will spread to more and more people, whether it's a little kid, hey, Joey, my, my grandson, or my son just accepted Jesus, or a, a person in the nursing home who's, who's got one foot I, I, in the grave already. Every time they come to Christ, Paul says, I want it to spread to more and more people. Ready for this? Causing the abounding of thanks to the glory of God. That's what it's all about. We should be standing and singing, saying, God, thank you for saving me. And let me bring others. Let me live for Christ. Let me pray. Oh, God, thank you for glorious conversion. Paul said it's from him, through him, to him. And so praise results for it. So don't come to church and go, I'm not going to sing it. I don't feel like singing. I didn't get much out of it. It wasn't for you. We're here to glorify Jesus who saved us. And I'll be the first one to say, I don't wake up every morning going, praise Jesus, I'm saved, thank you, Jesus, right? Sometimes I have to take my sorry self in my prayer room and say, God, I'm so weak and lukewarm. I'm a typical American Christian, ho-hum Christianity. And we ask God, change my heart. And let's pray that God will use this book to transform us as we walk worthy while we're waiting. Father, thank you for the glories of the gospel, how wonderful it is that your grace is spreading. Thank you that you capture us through your gospel. You change us. Oh, Lord, we're so weak and frail. We don't change as fast as we should. We don't change as well as we should, but I pray that all of us are changing. Lord, if there are people here who are not converted, cause them to, to fear the wrath to come until they find rest in Jesus. And may the rest of us just be so grateful, Lord. May we be worthy disciples who are seeking to advance the gospel. Change us inwardly, Lord. And I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll change our world outwardly for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're allowed to read ahead in chapter two next week. <laughs>